This episode is brought to you by Resource Consulting Services, Australia's leading provider of holistic, regenerative farm business education and advisory services. The Grazing for Profit School has been delivered in every Australian state to more than 5,500 farmers, empowering them to increase profit, lift the health and production of their land, improve relationships in their business and enhance their work-life balance. Learn more at rcsaustralia.com.au Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Welcome back to the Central Station Podcast. My name is Steph Coombs and I'm your host. And I am back after um, not being able to record for the past few weeks because I got really sick and I lost my voice. So it's almost all back. Luckily, this episode was recorded about three weeks ago, so I had a good voice back then. I'm also recording this intro right now from a kitchen on a cattle station along the Udnadatta track where I'm currently filling in as station cook. So out of all the jobs on a station that I've done before, cooking has not been one of them. Um, So I can cross that one off the list now and it's only been about 10 days, but I can confirm nobody has gotten sick yet. So, you know, it's one thing to make smokers. I could do that till the cows come home, but cooking dinner, anyway, pray for us all. So on to today's episode. I'm guessing that most people who are listening to this podcast episode have done a first aid course at some point in time, whether you do it through high school, your workplace, or as a part of training for a sports club or organization. First aid is something we all do at some point in time, if not quite regularly, because you actually need to do it every two years to maintain your currency. Now, when we do it, I think... For most of us, you know, it's just something that you've got to do. You know, you've, you've just got to get it done and you don't think you'll ever really use it. And you don't think that someone's life will ever be in your hands. Today, I'm talking to Jill Greenfield from Billicolina Station in South Australia. And her life was in someone else's hands when she had, she had a medical emergency and luckily a bystander who was trained in first aid was able to assess the situation, respond and keep her alive until professional medical help could arrive. And um, it's quite an incredible story and I'm really honoured that Jill was able to share it with us because this isn't a story that she's told many people or that she tells often, as you'll hear. So thank you, Jill, for sharing your story. It's a very big thing and a personal thing to share. And if there's a takeaway from this for anybody listening, it is please make sure you are current in first aid. I mean, you may only, hopefully you'll never, ever, ever have to use it. But as you'll hear in Jill's episode, somebody being trained and being able to assess the situation and know what she required, uh, which wasn't just CPR, she, she required more than that. Somebody being able to make that differentiation saved her life. So yeah, we'll get into the episode. And as we were starting off our chat, I asked Jill about what she was listening to at the moment by way of podcasts. Yeah, I've been listening to them mainly when I drive in the car just to give me something else to listen to apart from the usual ABC radio. Um, (laughs) And central stations. And central stations. (laughs) (laughs) Um. We, no, I've just been listening probably because she, I do listen to Mamma Mia out loud as well when the three women speak. Um, but generally I can't listen to that when my husband's in the car because he gets too cross with some of the stuff that they say. <laughs> so we, 
So I have been listening to the No Filter and I also listened to Conversations. Oh, with Richard Feidler. Feidler. Yeah, okay. Is there an episode of either of those that kind of sticks out in your memory that you'd recommend people to go listen? Uh, The one on No Filter was probably the one on Kyle Sanderland's and I probably wasn't a big fan of him and don't listen to a lot of – you know, radio like that, that he would have been on, but just from what I'd seen in the media. And he comes across, um, very differently in the no filter when Mia, um, yeah, interviews him. Yeah. He seems to be like the cat with nine lives. Like oh, whenever you read about him in the media, it's him getting in trouble and doing something really yeah, naughty. Um, he definitely seems to have gone through a few of his lives. So. Okay, interesting. So, and obviously, yeah, Central Station, right? You yes, yes, of course. Okay, cool. Yes, as you <laughs> no knew, pressure here, as you knew yesterday when <laughs> we got in the car. Oh yeah, so yesterday we're walking to go get in the car, and I'd gone over to the vehicle first to go put some stuff in it, and you know, open the door or whatever, no sound, nothing. And then as we're walking back to the car, all of a sudden I can hear, and I'm like, oh no, did I accidentally turn it on? Because it's one of those, you know, like keyless cars with the buttons. I was like, oh my god, have I done something? <laughs> like, what's am I going to give it a flat battery? And then I'm like, hang on, that voice sounds familiar. And it was Miss Helen, like <laughs> Helen Kemp. And I was like, what? And like, you're fine. That was so quick though. And we weren't even that close to the vehicle. No, my car must have been Bluetooth. My phone must have been Bluetooth to the car. And that's the last thing I'd just been listening to when I come home on the weekend. And I have, haven't actually quite finished Miss Helen. But then I was telling my husband, he said, well, don't keep listening to it because I want to listen to it. So <laughs> we're going away this weekend, probably to somewhere where she used to grow up actually so I thought oh we'll listen to that on the way up yeah true um at least it was just Miss Helen and not something I've actually there's a podcast I listen to and one of the segments is people send in their embarrassing stories (laughs) and there's um so and every now and then they'll do an episode on like sex or you know just something really raunchy and this person said that they um got in their what was it they walked into the office and they'd been playing like on their phone or whatever but then it synced to like their Yui Boom or something in the office. So then it started oh my going, yeah. Oh, or what was it? Oh no, they'd gotten in the car and like started playing the podcast, but they couldn't hear it. Yeah. And it had synced, it had Bluetooth to the Yui Boom in the office. So it was coming out in the office and they're in the car going like, why can't I hear my podcast? The whole office is hearing a podcast about sex though. <laughs> I thought that was the most brilliant thing. So at least it was relatively tame. We're talking yes, about. It was. It did worry me though. Cause I'm thinking, Oh, what did I know? That's oh, fine. Yeah, you're like, oh, no, it was fine, everyone. Don't you find that, like, even the other day, the kids had my phone and they were, like, going through it. It was, like, a nine-year-old girl. And I was like, let me just check. And I'm like, I don't – I know I don't have any, like, you know, naughty pictures. I don't have anything like that on my phone. I'm a bloody grandma. But I was like, oh, let me just check just, yeah, in, just case. in case. It's like when the cops – you see a cop on the road and you're yes, like, oh, my I God. Know. And you know you're going the speed limit. You're sober <laughs> as. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to go to jail for being sober and on this, like, you know – Riding the speed limit. Anyway, we always assume the worst of ourselves. <laughs> we do. We do. So tell me about um, – obviously, we're here at Bill and Kalina today, which I also just think is a really cool station name. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's unusual. Yeah, I, it's cool. And try, and, and try to spell it to people. Yeah. It's like yes. one of those surnames that people must have um, that are really impossible to spell. Well, our station name's impossible to spell. Which is funny because it's actually quite like – Villa Kalina, like it's not like it's um, something really crazy or, you know, sometimes there'll be um, things in other languages or an Indigenous language that you, yeah. and, you know, the letters don't match the sounds and all that. And, yeah, like it's actually relatively simple. So how simple. were you spelling it, Steph, at the start? <laughs> okay, so, do tell. so, well, shall we start off with the correct spelling? How would you spell Villa Kalina? B-I-L-L-A. Another word, K-A-L-I-N-A. So I don't know if I just listened to too many true crime podcasts because I was feeling a little murdery, but I was Bill. So B-I-L-L-A, so Billa. I think I had that bit down pat. And then I was writing Kalina, like K-I-L-L-I-N-A, like we're going to kill somebody. (laughs) That's usually the most common way of spelling it that I see. It's probably the way we we say it. We say it. We don't yeah. really. Well, it's kind of like the Mount Riddick. Yes, it is. Like actually, yes. Mount Riddick is yes. Mount Riddock, but you yep. like say it Mount Riddick. So, like, I like Bill Kalina mm. when it's probably Kalina. Yes. So it's just a tiny little inflection. We need and to get our pronunciation on. I know. Just so Australian. Gosh, we just shorten <laughs> everything. Um, but how did you come to be at Bill Kalina? Because. You know I love a good girl meets boy story. Oh, yes, I know. Everybody knows I love one of those. I know. Um, 
I was a teacher and then wanted a gap year, so the opposite way around, and decided someone at university said to me, oh, why don't you be a govo? And I went, oh, what's that? Anyway, long story short, I went up to Winterna Station, which is just between Coober and Marla on the Stewart Highway in South Australia, and um, I was the govo there for a year. And, of course, the first race meet we went to, which was William Creek, so that was the first event off off the calendar, which would be usually in about April, and another um, or teacher friend, or she was an itinerant teacher at the at the time for School of the Air, said, "Oh, do you want to go with me?" And we off we went, and that's where I met my husband. However, we actually did go to school together too. Really? Did he not tell you? No, that? Oh. I did not know this. <laughs> so we actually went to boarding school together, but we were in different years, and I didn't know him at, at school. Whoa! He actually said I was snobby. <laughs> I can see that you are a very like refined, classy looking lady. So, which I think would be like, you know, when people do, when people are like nicely presented and also you obviously look smart. Anybody who has glasses looks smart. Um, it probably isn't too far of a stretch to just, you know. <laughs> Was far from the truth, anyway. <laughs> so I think I was shy, not snobby, but anyway. So, we you, who's older then? If you're in different years, he's a year older. Okay. Yeah, and I was only there for the two years, and he had been there for the five years because so he'd you, obviously did done you school. Did you know who he was when you're at school? Uh, no, not really. But no. I probably only kept to my year level. And since yeah. I was a boarder, we kept with. The, I mean, he yeah. was a boarder, but it was quite separated at that school. Like the, it was even though it was a co-ed school, the boarding houses are on different streets, so yeah. you're not actually you don't live together. And back then, you didn't even eat together, so one would go in for a meal and then the next sitting. So they oh. do actually eat together now, but back then there just weren't the facilities. So I, we really didn't have a lot to do with each other. I love that he remembered who you yeah. were, though. Like, <laughs> you obviously that. caught his eye. Wow, that is such a good story. And also, so did you actually, like, meet and then kind of, like, get interested at that first event? Or was it like you just met at that event and then you kept running into him and then – because I just love these stories where people are like, oh, I just came out here and, like, it was on the drive up or my friend Barb, her – now husband picked her up from the airport to bring her back out to the station or I've heard other ones so many stories like that it's literally like bam first minute you get there it's like oh that's my husband or my wife like <laughs> oh yeah it probably was actually now I'm embarrassed <laughs> it's oh was this a was this a, a naughty week <laughs> no nah, just kidding no um, no 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 but the no. sparks are flying uh-huh. yes it was it wasn't just the the, the fumes coming out maybe it was the fumes coming out of the motorbikes at the motor car <laughs> No, there weren't motor car, mo- oh, motorbikes wasn't back then. Or yeah. horses. Oh. So maybe it was the dust and the I know, it must have been. And, and probably me sneezing because I'm allergic to the horses. So, yeah, <laughs> it was just a match made in heaven, and really. You see this guy <laughs> ride up on a horse and he's like, hey, I remember you. And you're like, oh, shoot. Please stand back. Go away. And the rest is history. Oh, it is. And because it's, what, <clears throat> almost – got to be almost 30 years, like, coming up on – it was just Willing Creek Jim Carner the other day. It was 27 years since, since you've met. Wow. That's so cool. <laughs> Steph, you love a good story. Oh, my God. I love a good story. People listening are like, come on, can we hear about cows or something else? But I'm like, how did you meet? Who asked who out? Tell me all the stuff. Um, if anyone does want a good story, go back to, I think it's episode 14, Kate Everett. She tells a good yarn about oh, her and Tick getting together. So, yeah, I love a good story. Um and so at the time, Cole was at Bill Aquina. So if people, hopefully, by the time they listen to your episode, they've listened to his. Yes. Um, and so his, well, his family has been here since the 30s, which is insane. <laughs> so cool. Um, but you came here. So tell me a bit about Bill Aquina from your perspective and where we are. And I mean, that's the other thing I've noticed. Not everybody listens to every episode. So. Let, let's just pretend they haven't listened they to Cole's. Haven't, yeah, okay. So we're just um, outside the dog fence, which Steph knows all about the dog fence now, so in South Australia. So basically we're in the northwest. Um, yeah, it's a cattle place. Um, and then we've got a few other properties which are inside the dog fence, which are sheep and cattle. Uh, I've been here 23, just over 23 years um, um, now. And then, yeah, I what else would you like to know? Well, I think what I find really interesting, and I did say this in Cole's episode, but it's uh, obviously you have different roles and different experiences, so you'll have different perspectives on this. But 
you're telling me yesterday about how um, Billy Cleaner is quite isolated. And I was like, well, yeah, every station's like, well, 99% of them are pretty isolated. But it's actually from a really different perspective that I haven't um, come across anywhere before. Because normally, like, we think, oh, you're isolated, you're, you know, four hours from Woolies or eight hours from Woolies or, you know, this or that. But it's different. It's a different scenario for Billy Cleaner. So tell me about that. It is a bit. We're not on one of the main roads and one of the main tracks, so we're actually um, we're on a public access road, but we would never get tourists. And also, being in the Woomera Pibbetted area also stops us. Being in a defence area stops a lot of just um, people coming through, like travelling through travellers. So even though we do get mail twice a week to our doorstep, it is from a very very um, small supermarket at Woomera, so it's um, the supplies are limited there but it is a good service still to have so I guess we're not on say the Stuart Highway or the Unadatta track so generally speaking most of my our supplies for the station come up in either a car or ute that we that we um, transport back up again yeah so as a lot of other people Mm -hmm. can kind of tap into pre-existing like truck routes yeah they can that trucks are doing like you guys don't have and so tell me more about this Woomera prohibited area and what that means for yeah getting your supplies in and and why why you don't have tourists which I'm sure everyone else is like wait hang on can we somehow turn our station into a prohibited (laughs) area no offense tourists sorry just just have no end yes it does have its um advantages sometimes so the WPA in South Australia is, is a really unique, I think it's the only one in the world. And from my understanding, it's basically defence um, can own the, they don't own it, but they can use the airspace and the ground space. So meaning that if there's um, flights um, in this path, they can say, no, we're using it because we're either uh, – doing something for defence. So they um, could be letting off rockets or they're testing missiles or they're doing all sorts of things. We've had um, army camps set up here before, like in years gone by when they've had um, donkeys and motorbikes riding around trying to test to see if they can see if there's um, roadside bombs and things like that. We've had some pretty cool stuff over the many years. But, I mean, they only tell us what we... Are able to know, put it that way. Yeah, yeah. So, and also another unique thing is that we, our homestead is in this WPA defence area. So they, they can also, um, ask us to vacate if they're, if they want to be able to do something like a missile or something. They can also shut the Stuart Highway down, which they have. A really? Of years. Yeah. So but basically for the day. So if we're basically vacated, usually the Stuart Highway. So any truck, caravan, car, anything. Oh, imagine the will traffic. Get pulled up. Yeah. yeah, it does. So generally it's a huge job because I have to let every trucking transport company know and they need to let every tourist oh, so caravan park know in advance. They try to oh, okay. give you as much advanced warning as um, they can. I think that has certainly changed my perspective of I would never drive down down the Stuart Highway without – I mean, obviously, you always travel with water, yes. snacks, but sometimes, like, you don't always pack snacks or stuff because you're like, oh, I'll just walk at the next roadhouse or I'm just going to drive straight through to wherever I'm going. But you could get – if you are not – because, say, you know, they're letting people in the area, you know, but say you're coming from Darwin or yes. Alice Springs, you might you not be, like, in it. the loop. Yeah. And then you come and you hit this traffic jam mm-hmm. and you're there with, like – no, yeah. I love, I'm like with no chocolate. <laughs> oh dear God. Um, but also how bizarre I just think that they can, and you tell me like they can just be like, you need to evacuate. You need to leave. Like it, it's, you own the pastoral lease. Yes. You live here. You've got, you know, whatever, but they can be like, get out. I'm sure they say it nicer than that. Yeah, they do. Um, <laughs> I love. Well, I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth, but I totally am. Um, but they can be like, you need to leave for X amount of time and you you can't refuse or resist because it's it's federal and it's the Defence Force. And obviously we have a lot of um, respect and gratitude for the people yes. who serve our country and yep. what they do for us. But yeah. it's just bizarre. It, it, yeah, it is. And it's quite unique. I, I guess we've all grown up with it and that's why I've explained the air raid shelters. So back in the day, did Cole explain them to you? Okay? A little bit, a little yeah. Bit, yeah. I, I thought it was a cellar when I got yeah, here no. yesterday. I was like, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> like, So back in the day, you used to have to actually go in there if they were letting off something that was a missile or something that could have hit your house so you had to hide in there or not hide in there but wait in there until and it's just um there so they're above ground and they just look like a 
like earth, basically. It's, it's yeah, hard to I thought explain. it was a pile of dirt. And then yeah. I walked around the side and I saw a door and I was like, oh, cool, they must have a cellar. Because <laughs> <laughs> the way my mind's going. I suppose the other thing Cole mentioned in his episode is that back, like that was kind of because back in the day they didn't necessarily know where the missiles were going to no, land. No. So, I, and I don't know how often they do this, but imagine you'd want to have like all – you'd almost want to keep all your prized possessions in that bomb shelter too. Because what if you come back out and then accidentally something's happened and then your whole house is gone and I'm sure they'd replace it and stuff, but you've got like the history or your artifacts. Like wouldn't that just be mortifying? I have actually mentioned that to defence before, but I think nowadays their safety template is so like we're talking one in 10 million or so. I don't know what the statistics. I mean – you probably well, walk across would... the road and have an accident more frequently than being hit by the missile. Oh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I guess they ha- they they are, I guess, in essence, playing with people's lives and home, uh, you know, homes and lives. So I guess they do have to look at the absolute worst worst case scenario. So that's why we are asked to vacate. So when I vacate, I do think, oh, do I take anything? Like, do yeah, I? Yeah, what if you come back and it's a pile of rubble? I don't, like- by the way, but <laughs> I do, I do kind of, it does cross my mind. Anyway, I take my handbag and the dog and that's probably <laughs> off I go. So well, I figure. I'm wondering um, if back in the day when people had to go on the bomb shelters, like, do you take your pet in with yeah. you? But then, like, how long do you have to wait in there? What if they smell? Like, because I know, like, some stations up, I've spoken to friends, like, in the Kimberley, and they've had to go, like, cyclone prep, and oh, they yes. put, like, all the, like, the goats and the chickens, yeah. or whatever, in, like, another, like, a room, which yeah. I'm just like, oh, have fun and cleaning that yeah, afterwards. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But yeah. imagine if you just come back and it, could be like very post-apocalyptic yeah, and then you've just got like rubble and smoke and kind of looks like one of the Hunger Games movies or something. And you've just got these chickens like and goats, well, not that you've got any goats, but chickens and whatever else just cruising around. Yes, I'm hoping that won't happen. But anyway, um, yeah. No, it ha- it has crossed my mind before, but generally speaking, I do- they do tell us that the chances of it hitting something, and I think nowadays also Defence have told us that as Cole said, back in the day when they did let off missiles, they it just fell. If it fell in the wrong place, it fell in the wrong place. Now they've actually got the capacity to blow it up if it's going oh, off track. It. Oh wow! So fancy. So do you ever hear? I guess you're not here when they're letting off the missiles, then, so you don't hear them or see uh, them. Or- yeah, you do. Yeah, because oh, really? often we're out on our boundary, so so not our boundary, but we can go out where the WPA is, so where you came through oh, on that northern road where yes. I said there was that sign. Yeah. So that would be where we have to go and wait. And you can, yeah, sometimes, yeah, especially if they're or, – or sometimes we can just be here and they're doing things and they're like breaking the sound barrier and you can hear the jets going and they're just all of a sudden this big boom. And, of course, you're looking in the wrong direction because you see something but you can't – you know, the, yeah, yeah you can't. The, the, yeah, so I know they've, and sometimes you can see a little bit of stuff going on, but generally speaking, they leave us alone. I wonder what goes through you guys have. Well, on Billaclean, you've got cattle, and then on your neighbouring property, which is on the other side of that dog fence, you're talking about you've got sheep and cattle, but I mean you've also got horses, chickens, dogs, whatever. I wonder what the animals think when these sounds <laughs> come up. They must just be like. Henny Penny, the world is ending. Yes. Did Cole tell you about his experience on a motorbike once, riding along? No. And he was riding, mustering, and all of a sudden he just jumped to the ground under a bush and thought, what was that? But they were letting something off. And we're, we're, we're allowed to be here, but it was the most – he just said it was the like the – biggest noise he'd ever heard and he thought holy shivers what is happening to me but anyway he worked out it was something to do with defense so i guess it's being a little bit like in a earthquake or something area you're kind of not expecting it but when it does happen you think oh yeah they must have just been doing something i love that he jumped off yeah I know. under a bush like, yeah i know yeah blue bush is yeah, really gonna provide really you some solid he said like, it scared the bejesus out of him uh, oh, to be there. That's when that's when you want a GoPro on your yeah, bike on your helmet. <laughs> oh, poor Cole. Sorry, oh. Cole. And as you can see out here, there's not a lot of bushes either. So God knows, no, he must have found a random bush. <laughs> oh my goodness! Now, also, um, so obviously, there's you've got that that access road outside of the WPA. Uh, but what about coming in? That's the other thing I found quite interesting that you're telling me about is that if people want to come and visit, like it's almost like living in a bit of a gated community. It's, it's, quite, a it's quite fancy. Mm, it is. Um, so, yes, if you're actually coming up through Woomera, which is our main access road to get south to Port Augusta, Adelaide, um, you have to be 
uh, you have to get permission. We don't every time. We're obviously on a list, um, an ongoing list, and any of our staff I have to put on a list. So if you are coming up, I'd have to ring them and get permission for you to come up. So they know, they want to know who's in here at all times. Yeah, that's, um, I don't know, pretty impressive. <laughs> I did say to Cole last night, I was like, imagine when the girls want to start bringing home boyfriends. Yeah, I know. Could you be like, <laughs> oh, sorry, they're not on the list. <laughs> like... Oh, it's not us. There must just be something going on with defence. Don't I? Sorry, honey, we tried. We They've tried. already done a five point check and they don't check out. So <laughs> yeah. They're out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, oh, girls. Oh, goodness. Yeah, they're going to be like, Mom, it's not person. So, yeah, you do have three girls, three yes. daughters, um, which I think is, like we said yesterday, quite fitting that this station was bought in the 1930s by a woman, by Cole's mm. great grandma, Edith. Yes, I was like, it's Wednesday. She's my woman crush Wednesday. (laughs) What about us? Look at her just buying up property in the 30s. So what has it been like um, raising them out here and being, I suppose, so you've got your general level of isolation being on a cattle station. You know, that's probably nothing new for, well, for anyone on a station, but then you've got this extra layer of being out kind of, you're not having your tourists or your trucks or your access to services and, then you've got this defence. I mean, did you ever you would have to evacuate with kids? Yeah, we did a few times. Oh, that would um, be a pain in the butt. Yeah, it was, especially when they were doing school of the air. Um, but as I said, it doesn't happen all the time. It probably can happen sometimes, only once every couple of years, and it just it just depends on what they're doing. Um, so no, I mean that probably hasn't affected. Just yeah, I mean I think the kids have a have a great life out here. They do miss out on your. Um, usual mainstream sports and then they um when if they go away to school or our kids went away to boarding school and then had to lie their way into teams and say they'd played sport before and they hadn't but anyway I hopefully they had enough ball skills and just (laughs) some athletic skills to say oh yes yeah I can do that no I never played in that game of netball in their life but that's all right (laughs) that's so funny because that really reminds me of the college admissions scandal in the US like last year or the year before where that lady from Full House like she actually got sent to prison because they like and that was a bit more dramatic like they did lots of lying and bribing to get their kids into college and stuff No, this, think, this was just Saturday morning sports. So yeah, I don't yeah. think it was too. I think you're going to get locked up for that. But that's funny. So I'm pretty sure one of the things was that they said that they they put one of their daughters on the rowing team or something so they could get into such and such or whatever. And she wasn't on the rowing team at yeah. all. And oh wow! Yeah, okay. it's like big drama. Is it like Laurie Laughlin? Is that her name? Oh, She's okay. from Full House. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh yes, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I'm like, have you just incriminated yourself? <laughs> okay. No, it's just Saturday morning netball. I'm sure you'll be fine. I suppose one thing I've realized here is that not obviously or no, not everywhere kind of advances at the same rate and has the same mod cons or luxuries. You know, Justin Cole's episode will, you guys didn't have a private phone line until the eighties, like mid eighties, mm. you know? Um, and before that it was like a party line and then radio before that. Whereas, you know, in the seventies, it would have been very normal anywhere else in Australia to have your own yeah. phone, but you also didn't have aircon for. Not until that, not that long ago. Uh, yeah. So when we first moved here, we didn't. And as I was kind of explaining to you, it's, it's more about your power system because we're self generated that it depends on what you can put on your power system. So, and we did have battery backup and not so much solar back then, but battery backup. So, um, anything with, you know, a heating element or whatever is hard on your, on your pass. So no, we didn't have aircon and I guess I didn't really think too much about it. I married and moved up here one summer. That was a little bit hard, but probably the next summer was the hardest because I was eight months pregnant. And yeah, that was, I mean, we, we could have a little portable one that you just, you know, the water coolers that you just put a little oh, bit of water, yep, mm-hmm. yep, water in and that. So um, they helped a bit and fans and things like that. But so. you would have, this is early 2000s, so you would have grown up in the 90s like with aircon. Air Did you have aircon at your, you were up on a farm? Uh, uh, no, I didn't, only because I live in the, I lived in the southeast oh. of South Australia, which is the, you think it's cold here, it's next yeah, level cold. Yeah, that is a good point. So okay. we had heating, not aircon. <laughs> air <laughs> okay. get that hot there. Okay, so, but then that must have been a pretty big, like, shock for you to come from such a cold place. Yeah. And as I said, I've gone from a 30 inch rainfall to a five inch rainfall. 
in yeah. so from the southeast to here. Yeah. Yeah, it was a bit of a shock. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And my mother, when she came up here, she said, what do the cows eat, Jill? And I said, oh, I don't know yet. Anyway, I'm sure I'll find <laughs> out. There's magic beans in there. There's, there's a lot of gibber rocks, as we know, <laughs> yeah. isn't there? <laughs> oh, there must be some nutritive value in those rocks. <laughs> yes, there must be. Because the cows are looking great. <laughs> and so you were eight months pregnant when you didn't have aircon. How did that go coming home with a baby and trying to – keep well, that all nice and smooth sailing yeah well first of all going back a step I actually had my first one five weeks prem um and so my waters broke on the station here it was in the middle of the night and I remember <laughs> saying to my husband don't think this is quite right or what's supposed to happen and we joke about it now but we quickly grabbed the um what to expect when you're expecting and tried to read the having oh, a really? premature baby <laughs> Because we were like, holy shivers, I don't think that's kind of the right, what's supposed to happen. This was not in the book or the manual. It didn't quite go this way, so we do laugh about it now. I'm sure we didn't actually read the book, but maybe he would have. Um, so, yeah, we rang the RFDS and all was good. She was born two days later. But, yeah, she was five weeks preemie. So. so if this is in the middle of the night, did you have to drive off the station or wait for daylight when the RFDS could land? No, we waited for daylight until the RFDS could land because – realistically I hadn't actually gone into labour my waters had just broken so I was actually quite okay I was just sitting there quite normal it was probably my father-in-law that was freaking out the most (laughs) um about things so we did but we do have actually flares that the RFDS can land at night so we just some can like it it, it has to be in an emergency but they have before landed quite a few times at night yeah but this was more by the time it kind of we got we got onto them and then we um, I guess they assessed the situation and everything. They said, okay, you're actually okay. Do you know what I mean? It was it was fine. I wasn't actually um, going into labour at that stage or I wasn't contracting. So they landed probably at first light and picked me up or picked Cole and myself up and we got flown to Port Augusta because she was kind of on the – if I was any more premier, probably would have gone to Adelaide, but at this stage everything was going okay. I just um, – yeah, she decided she wanted to come a bit earlier. And I had probably gone into nesting mode that previous week because I knew I was going away because generally on stations you have to go away at least four weeks beforehand to have babies. So Cole was about to drive me down to my parents and that didn't quite go to plan because I'd obviously washed the floors and cleaned the windows and done everything because I thought that that was really necessary at the time, which looking back, I just anyway shake my head and most people do but I think it's just people that have had babies before know that feeling like I have to get everything right I'm unsure because the baby probably really doesn't care (laughs) when they come home but anyway she's now a 22 year old and fighting fit so it was all fine we had a few dramas at the start but nothing major I can just imagine you though like you said your waters broke but you weren't in labor knowing you I just would imagine that you would have gone and got them up and tried to clean yeah, it up. Probably, yes. Yeah, that's the kind of – you'd be like, oh, nah, she's right. Like, oh, there's a mess. Uh, I'm still nesting. I do not want this mess. But the problem is we weren't really organised because we um we still were driving a ute, so we had to find a family car. I hadn't bought a car seat because I was going to do this all in that last month and buy the, you know, baby capsule and the nappy bag and everything. Anyway. It worked out fine. She was okay and we were all good, but it was just that um, I probably wasn't as organised as what I thought I was going to be. So for you, was that your first experience with RFDS, needing them for yourself? Um, at that age? Yes. yes, yes at that point? Yep, because yep, I'd only been here probably 18 I oh know, nearly two years yeah. when Laura was born. And you've since become somewhat of a frequent flyer or you know gold member if we're talking Qantas points, you know, uh, with RFDS, unfortunately, but also very fortunately that you're still here and fighting fit. So can we talk a little bit about that? Is that all right? Um, yeah, all good. So in 2005, I was um, age, oh God, I can't remember now. I was 31, sorry. And I was actually at a local rodeo which is probably a godsend um, that I was actually in a town, which is at Roxby Downs, which is a mining town. And we just happened, the kids were only two, four and six at the time and Cole was in there with me. And I actually um, suffered a cardiac arrest, which came completely out of the blue, like 
completely out of the blue. Um, I'd never suffered any heart problems before. I was um, young and fit. Um, I had no medical issues whatsoever. So um, I was luckily... I had a – there was a, a few good things that happened that night. I happened to be – because it's a mining town, a guy that was happened to be standing next to me, I, um, I don't know him. I, I've met him now, but I didn't know him at the time. I, I must have been talking to a friend. I actually don't have any recollection of it. Just doctors tell you when you have a major trauma, you actually lose your memory, which I have. But I have um, – I have been told these things. So he was standing um, beside me and I fell backwards and people just thought I must have fainted or something. He, um, But he was a like a, not a medic, but they have to have their, he was kind of worked um, in the emergency part. Like if there's an emergency in the mine, he would go to it. And so he could, um, he checked me and said, no, she hasn't just fainted. Um, she's had a cardiac arrest and so he actually started CPR on me and then they called for a doctor and there happened to be a doctor in the crowd in Roxby which is probably only a few doctors maybe two at the time one happened to be there with his family he came over um, and so they worked on me for a considerable amount of time the ambulance come and they did have to yeah defib me a few times um, to get me back to life it's just i've got the biggest goosebumps yeah i know and, i and do a bit too <laughs> and it's and i was like well it's also like nine degrees right now and i'm freezing but no it's the goosebumps that the the luck of having someone so close to you and then having a doctor in the crowd and and to yet yeah, someone to be able to recognize the difference between feigning and cardiac arrest because i only redid a refresher course of my first aid two days ago and it was only a year and a half so not even like the required two years that you've yep. got to you know got to do it and so i remember to use a defib they've got to be unconscious not breathing yep so to pick up on that not to be like oh she's just you know Fainted yeah, or, fainted or, you know, it's, it's a hot day. She's yes. maybe had a bit to drink yes. or, you know, there could have been yep. so many things. And then to have people work on you, like that is, you know, we all do these first aid courses being like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like hoping that you would never have to use them. And then. Yeah, I say that as well. I know. And you go to a first aid course and I've been to many since and before that, obviously. And they teach you to do CPR and literally you do. I, I get it, Steph. You kind of sit there and go, oh, yeah. No, I'll never have to do that. Like, and you just, yeah. and then that person saved my life, literally, like literally saved yeah. my life. And I have met him actually since, which is kind of surreal a little bit because I don't remember him, obviously. Um, because even, I don't know, I think I watched too many movies and you have. So when you come to, you don't actually, um, you're not actually awake. You're still, do you know what I mean? I was still oh, unconscious. So yeah. when you come to, so I never actually saw him as such. So. Yeah. But I was told afterwards who it was and then I finally um, took the courage up a long time afterwards to actually ring him and thank him. This kind of took me a year to do, of course, because I couldn't – I just couldn't bring myself to it at the start. It was just too emotional and everything. <laughs> it still probably is emotional and it's 15 years ago. So <laughs> anyway, it took me a while and, um, yeah, he's really good. Actually, two years ago he came up to William Creek, Jim Carner, and he said, oh, remember me? I went, oh, my God, it's you. <laughs> like, um, come stand next to me all night, please. Like put a handcuff on him, stay right next to me. <laughs> we did have a bit of a joke at the time because he said, oh, this is my wife, and we were introduced and um, we said, oh, yes, Yes, she's the one that I kissed to lightly. <laughs> we were like having a bit of a joke about it because you had to see the funny side. I'm going, oh, thank you for doing that. Yeah. Anyway, well, he was, um, no, he was, it was, it was actually really good. So yes, you do do these first aid courses. And now we're actually very fortunate to have, um, defibs actually at homesteads in South Australia, which is huge because you also go to these first aid courses and I'm a real, advocate for this is they teach you CPR but CPR alone wouldn't have actually um, brought me back to life I actually had to have a defib so if you were out here you'd probably be waiting an hour at least for a defib to come which is an awful long and the longer you're doing CPR the longer it is for there to be brain damage or something to someone or they not survive so yeah, I think I was worked on for about 20 minutes, which in itself is quite a long time. Absolutely. Well, we to do our assessment in the first day course, they make you do it for two minutes straight. And I was like, oh, my wrist hurt, my hands yeah. hurt. And then, yeah, normally everyone's just giggling, going, oh, I wouldn't, I, I hope somebody cute, you know, 
Mm. you know I hope it's not some old person or some you know gross yeah. person or something like you know you kind of I don't know if it's just a coping mechanism that we all kind of make light of it to, yeah, we do. because I guess the reality is otherwise like if you're pretend you're in that real situation but to be in it do you, do you what kind of support did you receive or seek afterwards from that because I can imagine the the trauma that you've been through would have a toll on your mental health yeah. as well as your physical health Oh, look, it seems like a lifetime ago. And to tell you the truth, I've never, ever really spoken about it. I mean, I do to family and friends, obviously, because um, I had to have a lot of testing. So eventually I went into Roxby Downs Hospital. They then transported me to Adelaide and I was probably in hospital for about two weeks and they I had every doctor known to mankind trying to work out what was wrong with me. I was a 31-year-old, fit, healthy, young woman. Why was this happening to me? So at the end of two, oh, after about 10 days, they inserted a defibrillator in me. So it's just under my skin and the cords go to my heart. So it either paces me if I'm having, so if, if it, um, suspects I'm having a arrhythmia, it, um, paces me first and then it will defib me, um, if it needs to. Look, that all happens in the space of two seconds. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. when you're saying that, it sounds like a long process, but it's not if it does actually happen to you. They never found out. I've had, um, genetic testing. So they think it could be a couple of things, but then when they go to test for that, it's not. So they kind of say it's like finding a needle in a haystack. And even when I go in, I've had stress tests. I've been put on ECG machines numerous times and I'm, nothing kind of happens. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So then they can't, they can't know what's wrong. So anyway. So that's a lot. Obviously there was a lot of medical follow up to try and diagnose the issue. But what about in terms of like, did you receive any counseling or like you said, you don't talk about it to many people outside your immediate family? It is a big trauma to go through, or, yeah. uh, but it's also very, you know, the norm for country people to be stoic and be like, well, no, nah, well, she's right. I'll just get on with it. And you just yeah. don't talk about it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so at the time, no, I didn't. And I probably regret that, but I had a young family and it was just, um, <laughs> as soon as I talk about my girls, oh, I start crying. Um, I had to get home. Basically, I just wanted to get home to my girls. So I kind of come home and just life went on. Um, I obviously lost my license for a little while just because of it. So that made it a little bit difficult, but I was very nervous about going anywhere on my, on by myself. Um, and that took years, like years. And probably after five years, I think I then actually was saying to, uh, there's a really good nurse at the cardiology um, place that I go to and she's seen me through from like the first, you know what I mean, episode to now and she's um, really good and she said, oh, Jill, if if you're not coping, do you want to come down to a support? And so I did go down to Adelaide and I'll never forget it. I was in this room with lots of other people that had cardiac arrest so I I felt a little bit more normal and and this nurse actually spoke, another nurse actually spoke and she's a counsellor but she's got a um, cardiac nursing background as well and and then afterwards, Cole dragged me up there, my husband, because I was in tears. But then I looked around, there were lots of other people in tears in the room as well. So I thought, okay, this is fairly normal. And this was five years afterwards, and then I started seeing a counsellor. But it took me until then to be able to. But until then, I was very nervous about ever, like, um, leaving my husband's side if we were – do you know what I mean? I wouldn't just go up the street shopping on my own. I'd be like, oh, can you just make sure I'm coming back or just just things like that. I don't know what was going through my mind. And, yeah, basically the counsellor just talked me through what's worst-case scenario, you know, you're falling down. And I think that's everyone's – do you know what I mean? You're fainting in front of someone. It's It's kind of embarrassing. But then she says, really, you're still alive. And so we just, yeah, we talked it through for a few years and I'm much better – way way better and I guess it's kind of good to talk about it but saying that it's not something that I just blurt out to strangers in the street kind of thing so I because because it doesn't affect me and you can't see it do you know what I mean so you have no idea I wear a medic alert bracelet um that's probably the only thing that would give it away and at the airports I can't go through the um screening machines like I have to actually be patted down so anything like that so but I've traveled overseas and that since and I've got a little card that says I've got a um, defibrillator implanted and things like that so really 
apart from deep sea diving I'm not supposed to do and there's one sort of welding but I don't weld anyway and there's a few <laughs> things that I'm not supposed to do but they're obscure things that I was never going to do anyway so I figure I live a really normal life. Yeah. I you, you just mentioned that you when you go shopping you'd be like you know, stick by my side that sort of thing how obviously this this is a traumatic experience and there would be like these these follow-on or flow-on effects no matter where you lived but but particularly I feel like they might be amplified out here because you're so far from help and so like you're saying you're in the shops you're like oh hang hang by me whatever but then what about when you're back at the home set and he's got to go out to work or your workers are at work and you're just here with some kids yeah. maybe a govy or something and then so not just that like not having other people around but knowing if something happens you are so far from help yeah how did you – that must have been – sorry, I don't want to no, no, make no. you relive your trauma, but it just must have been yeah, intense. Oh, I did. I used to worry. But the kids all knew – I mean, they were a little bit older, I guess. I oh, know they weren't really. I met my eldest probably. It probably hit her the hardest. She remembers it because, of course, our kids – the night it happened, um, a complete stranger – well, actually, I, I used to teach in Roxby Downs and the mother, she was very kind. She happened to be in the crowd – of um, one of the kids I used to teach and Cole just said, here's my car, here's my keys to my car and here are my kids. She didn't even know what car it was. My kids had to show her in the car park. It was, anyway, we do laugh about it now, but he just had to be with me. Do you know what I mean? So he just had to have my kids safe somewhere and she took the kids and she was an absolute marvel. (laughs) Thank you to her. And I guess, I don't know, the kids kind of knew what to happen. If there was something wrong, they would always call on the radio. They knew to, you know, call the RFDS and things like that. But to tell you the truth, I'm pr- I'm probably safer than a lot of people. I- I've got a defib in, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I can't actually be defibbed by an external one anyway. So really, apart from I have had a few episodes and I have, yeah, fallen down, but generally speaking, I've been okay. So... 99% of the time I'm I'm really good so I just have to and the and the kids all knew it they knew as I said to you before like it's the defibs um just under your skin and just like on your um the bottom of your collarbone kind of thing if that's how I explain it and when they were really little they'd come up and come for a snuggle and they go oh mum it's hard that side and is that hurting because they could feel it underneath so they oh. snuggle into the other side hey, mum this isn't a very nice pillow <laughs> yeah. Oh, can I have some padding, please? Bless them. There's Kids. lots of padding on the other side. So good. <laughs> um, but as you said, it hasn't really. Uh, well, obviously, but you know, well, hasn't really impacted your has impacted your life. But day to day life now, you can still like yesterday. Okay, guys, everyone, Jill is such a badass. We went out. <laughs> Yesterday, Jill took me out to show me a bit and Cole was out mustering. And then he just jumps off the bike and Jill like puts on this helmet and jumps on this 250 bike and just like goes off mustering. And I was like, what? what? Like I can, I wouldn't even, I don't know. Your feet can't touch the ground on those things and they're heavy and they're scary. And you're just here, you are like in your, in your forties, you know, you've got three grown children. You can do everything else around the homestead. You're like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go jump on the bike and go muster these sheep. And I was like, okay, cool. Hello, woman crush Wednesday. Um, but so that you are still able to leave a, a lead a fairly active life. And like yep. you said, though, there have been a few more episodes where you have had to where has they have they happened on the station? I know there's been some when you've been in towns or cities, but yeah, there was one here too. I was um, just getting out of the shower. Actually, I had a bit of warning for that one, as in a split second and I just quickly put myself to the ground and then it and then it, it basically what happens is that um when it's all happening your blood pressure just goes right down. Do you know what I mean? So and it's as I said, it's pacing you and then it's um if it if it's paced you say, I don't know how many times, but once or twice. And then if it hasn't got you out of that arrhythmia after those couple of times, it then defibs you so it actually kicks you kind of and uh, once twice three times it's happened to me since and two times two times I passed out and one time I actually do recall I stood standing but it was a it's like being kicked by something like if you've ever had a back kick from a calf in a yard that's probably a bit like but in your chest (laughs) it'd have to be a large calf wouldn't it so um anyway so yeah but as I was saying, on my medication, it keeps me it keeps me quite um, stable, and I've got a home monitoring um, 
device that um, I'm wireless to, so I only have to walk past it or I can manually do a transmission and it just looks like a little mouse, like a little computer mouse on this little fancy um, like little computer thing and then I put, pick the mouse up and I put it on my um, on my defib just on my skin and it sends down a transmission to my cardiologist and they can read it. And they can tell me because the battery doesn't have a life forever. So I've actually had to, so when the battery goes in it, I actually start beeping like, so I will actually. Oh no. So the device will start beeping, but of course that means that I would start beeping. Yeah. So, and then about every, the battery lasts about every five to seven years, depends on how much usage it's got. And I just got the transmission the other day saying I've got 4.7 years because I've just had it replaced two years ago. So they actually have to take the whole device out for the battery. So you yeah. just go in. It's just a day procedure. They just um, open the scar up So again. the minute it starts beeping, do you just like ring them up and you're like, book me in now? Because yeah. obviously you'd be worried about it going flat, but I'm just thinking the beeping would – it's like, you know, when the smoke alarm battery yes. is going low and you're just there trying to bash it and be like, just stop it. Like – um, yeah, you can't take the batteries out yourself, yeah. unfortunately, on this. So you're not the energizer bunny, you but you yeah. just like take kind it of out. like tape a towel over you to try and muffle the sound. <laughs> well, the last time they knew the batteries were going, because they can tell you every time you go for a um, update. And she said, "Look, you've got about six months." And I said, "Look, can I book in when I want to book in?" She said, "Totally get it, Jill. Like that's fine. If you're really older and you say 95, they'd probably try to." hold you off for as long as you can only because they don't want to put you under whereas yeah with me being younger I'll have a lot of batteries to change before I give up this world so I guess um I get a bit more say as when I want it done I don't let it get to the very end and I'm like red alert I really need to get to Adelaide oh I just think I found the title for this episode like Jill Greenfield, the battery-operated pastulus, or comes with uh, – because um, what is it usually when you get like a Barbie doll? Or, no, yes, not a Barbie yeah, doll, but yeah. something and it's like does not contain batteries. Yes, yeah. Jill Greenfield does contain <laughs> batteries. <laughs> oh, well, at least, yeah, at least you can have a little bit of laugh about uh, it now. But as we said, like it doesn't – you know, you've still been able to lead a very active life and something that you are particularly active in is the ICPA, so the Isolated Children's Parents Association. Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about that and why – you know, it's, it's a volunteer organisation. Just because you're a parent in an isolated area doesn't mean you have to be involved, but you are and you are heavily involved. Yeah, so I have been passionate about it and I guess it's um, my mother-in-law probably introduced me to it many years ago. Um, so ICPA in South Australia, so, it, you know, advocates for children's rights in um, remote and rural towns and the bush Um Everything, education from communication to early childhood to tertiary to distance ed. There's lots of different areas. Yeah, I have really got passionate about it and it's, and it's good because you do meet other people that are passionate because it's a federal, um, and it's all throughout every other state and territory throughout Australia. So it's, um, we've been able to travel with it as well. Um, and Yusha Coles, um, likes to be involved as well. So we've been to lots of conferences and, yeah, I just I I just feel that I would like to give back because there's people many many decades ago that have got allowances for us to be able to send our kids to boarding school or to do distance ed, and so I figure well if they if it was good enough for them and if they could do it back then, um, I'd like to give back to the community and to yeah education. What are some of the issues that you're seeing? through ICPA or through families living in isolated areas with their children that really need to be tackled? Yeah, there's lots. Um, there's probably um, when your children, if you're remote and there's no high school, sending your children to, um, to secondary school, whether it be boarding school or setting up a second home. So generally that one of the parents moves to a town that does have a, um, a high school so that they can attend. Just getting allowances for that because boarding schools or even setting up a second home, remember you've got rent and, um, you know, utilities and everything like that, food and that. So just getting allowances 
to, so that that's more viable for everyone and not just the people that can afford it because what do you do? And, and the problem is it's all very well to be able to get staff, but then for them to be able to get those allowances to be able to go, to go away. So they stay for longer. So those families basically can stay for longer where they want in their jobs in the bush. Another one is looking at, um, learning difficulties. Um, probably especially, or in, in small schools as well, but especially in the distance ed sector, just being able to have the right, um, the right tools to first up, first of all, identify those. So early intervention is kind of the key to it, but identifying those if there's any learning difficulties and then how to tackle them. If there's a child out here and they have learning difficulties, it's I suppose it's not something that's necessarily catered for through School of the Air or if they do a different form of distance education. Yeah, it's hard. It depends, I guess, on the learning difficulty. I mean, even if there's, say, speech issues, like you really need a speech pathologist and that's not going to come through distance ed, you then need to travel round trip every time. Do you know what I mean? Like it could be 500 Ks round trip just to see speech pathologists and then just trying to get speech pathologists out to um, rural towns is even proving difficulty difficult as well. So, but then in the distance ed sector, to the actual curriculum is probably more for the mainstream child and so just trying to get it so that you do have a specific learning program for that child so that it suits their learning style or type, whether they've got dyslexia or whatever it may be, is really important. And I just I just feel that no child should be disadvantaged just because they learn a different way. If you could change anything, I suppose, with like the snap of your fingers, what yeah. what would you bring in if you could be boss <laughs> for a day? Oh, more resources for it and training of teachers so that they know um, – how to how to teach and the programs to be given for those children you know with learning difficulties I just see so many families moving to mainstream schools so that they can um, they can get the help you they get need. the help they need and you see it all the time another one I'd like to see is with um, secondary schooling as well is that making it more affordable for everyone not just the people that can afford it Absolutely. And it's, it kind of comes back to the episode we did with Sarah Cook that, yeah. you know, we're not saying, oh, well, well, cause I guess, well, if you, if you live in the cities and you can go to public school, like you've got, it's a nominal fee or yes. whatnot. And yeah. a lot of country kids or rural kids do go to boarding school, which are private schools, but that's because they need to go to boarding school because yes. otherwise you, because if you don't, then people say, well, it's your choice to live out here and to yes. do this. But if you don't, live out here then who will and you can't have a rural community and have these gymkhanas and bronco brandings and races and whatever events you have out here any kind of event social event without families you need a community of all ages you need your old people your young people all the different age brackets to make up a community and you can't have these communities without you know everyone still deserves to be educated and it's just not I don't think it's fair necessarily to go well you choose to live out here so you either got to suck it up and send them somewhere or you've got to do distance ed which sometimes like it's yeah it's not there is a disadvantage yeah and it's not for everyone distance ed um I know that (laughs) I taught three children through it so we had our moments too um I just feel like oh no I've heard that oh well you choose to live here okay I do choose to live here however you choose to live in Adelaide and you, or you choose to live in a, you know, a, a, um, a bigger town or city or whatever. And you get those, um, you know, health education, really what you take for granted. Do you know what I mean? Well, why can't we? I'm still paying the taxes the same as yourself. So, and, and also we choose to live here. Okay. Most of it is agriculture. I know there's, um, tourism and other sectors as well in remote and isolated places but if it's if it's the majority of it would be agriculture well who's going to feed the nation I know that sounds a little bit um like a saying but do you know what I mean like so what happens then who is going to because if you don't have managers and do you know what I mean to manage no it'll it'll just be yes single males that just are like 100 years old and have no families and of course that's sustainable because somebody of course wants to live out here on their own with no family yeah. you know and then of course I don't know who the next generation is going to be you know yes. we're just going to get robots out here yes, exactly. 
maybe that's just what we need is some robots. We'll have it fully automated yep. and we'll all control it from a headquarters in the city. Yep. Um, and so. generally your younger families, not this is generally generalisation, but as in they're into more progressive, um, do you know what I mean, in progressive yeah. avenues in agriculture and technology and things like that. And that's and that's where we want to be going. Right. So, yeah, it's a catch-22 really. You want younger people but then – it's so hard it's, to keep them out yes, here. When, yes, when there's when health and education are probably our two main our main factors that drive people away. Okay, so definitely some food for thought there for people to think about. Um, I don't know. Obviously, it's probably one of these things we could sit down with a beer or a cup of tea and solve the problems. Yeah. And until somebody does make us boss for a day, but <laughs> I guess that I guess that at least the first step is just raising awareness. Because as I said in the I think it was episode fifty or fifty one with Sarah Cook. I didn't even think about the cost of a home tutor until, and I'd been one yeah. until last year when we had sat down and had a chat. So just, yeah. I guess, raising the awareness and thinking, oh, it isn't equitable. Like mm. things don't have to be equal, but it should at least be equitable. Yeah. And it certainly yeah. isn't. And in a, in a wealthy nation like ours, that's not something you would really expect. Yeah. So to start wrapping up, um, I suppose we've covered a, a fair bit today and obviously a big part of that is some health issues or your major health issue. But I do like to ask everyone what they do to look after themselves. And that can be mentally, physically, spiritually. Obviously you have to do certain things like you have medication, you've got checkups and all that. But aside from that, how do you look after yourself, Jill? (laughs) I do like to walk. As you know, I'm all ready to walk and hopefully you're coming with me, Steph, for a walk. Oh, yeah. Um, at least it'll be like a good five degrees warmer now yeah. than it was an hour ago. <laughs> oh, it's not even that cold. Come back in July and swag it here. Oh, sorry. I have to wash my hair that much. <laughs> um, yeah, I probably – I just like to stay fit and active and, and um, yeah, we lead a pretty healthy lifestyle I like to get out and about as much as I can apart from um cooking and doing book work that keeps me inside but um yeah I I, yeah I do love to walk and that keeps me I find it good for the mind and yeah just good for the mind and soul I think for me because it's hard to have sport out here, obviously. Do you know what I mean? As yeah. we said, we have to lie that we've played netball, which I was quite sporty in my younger years. So I probably miss that the most. So I've just figured, well, this is a little bit of activity at least. Absolutely. And what are, you know, what are you the most proud of in your life so far? Um, and, and I'll get, I'll get you to answer for Cole as well. Cause he <laughs> forgot, well, he thought of a different answer after he <laughs> finished recording last night. So I'll let you do a double answer if you like. He's a way different to mine. Yeah. I'd hate to think what he said. Um, my kids are the proudest, um, yeah, thing for me. And it's, and it's probably more and not more so for anybody, but especially when you've gone through the whole teaching process, the whole schooling process from where to go, it's quite, um, you are very involved in their, um, you know, academic side and just their social side. And we used to take them to gym carners and all things like that. And they all horse ride and which they take after their father, not their mother. Um, so yeah, definitely. The girls and also just being able to live, um, remotely. And it's not, and I always get asked, how do you live out here? Well, it's actually not that difficult. I quite like it actually. You have your own peace when you want to have your own peace. Do you know what I mean? Or there's people around if you want people around. So it's a bit of the best of both worlds. I do go to the city and then I think, Oh, I just want to get home for a home cooked meal and not be stuck in traffic. What a waste of my time, I think. <laughs> anyway. So yeah. Um, family, family and definitely just, and, and the business that we've, um, that we've built up uh, since managing ourselves. So the, um, decisions that we've been able to make and we were very, um, lucky or fortunate that we had in-laws, um, our parents, my parents-in-law, Colin's parents that did give us that opportunity at a quite a young age. So that would probably be what I'm most proud of and on just on behalf of Cole tell us a little bit about the trees because that's what he I think it was one of those things where you wake up in the middle of the night you're like I didn't say that he literally did he woke up and he told me I forgot to tell Steph something I said oh what is it honey and I thought it was going to be something really important anyway found I know and he goes the trees around here I went okay I'll tell everyone about the trees just because when you come to Billy Clinton we are on a big flat and there's not 
uh, most homesteads are on a river or a creek or a, something like that, whereas we're not, I'm sure. I don't know why they put it here, but anyway, for whatever reason, I think there was an initial water watering point here, a well or something. So that's why they would have. But every tree that we you see around here is actually planted by someone in the family. It could have been generations ago. They're all on dripper systems. And yeah, we just have a planting regime every year where we're putting more trees in and just trying to make it a really nice place to live, like with a just a nice garden. It's not massive because we do have we don't have an abundance of water, so we do need to be quite mindful of that. But just um and then trying to build trees more around or plant trees just for more shade for animals and things like that. Brilliant. I'm glad we did cover that. I'll make sure we take some pictures. <laughs> um, yeah, we've got a modelling shoot directly oh, after this. I don't oh know God. if you know that. Okay. In my walking gear. Yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. So. yeah. I'll be like, I wear activewear on the station. <laughs> we're like, is she in Bondi or is she at Villa Kalina? Like, who knows? If we just And then we zoom out. I'll be like, oh, no, she's at Villa Kalina. Uh, I don't think that's happening. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> between you and me, it's not. The photo shoot, by the way. You would have thought I would have had like a hot mile or something. So I'm like, where's this energy and this like, oh, coming from? Anyway, um, it's just the cold. I've just gone crazy. So for the final question, looking back on your story so far and the experiences you've had, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? My takeaway would be just to do your own thing and not worry too much about what everyone else is doing. I mean, it's good to get ideas, which I love getting ideas from other people, but just to, yeah, be your own self and be kind. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au, where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia, all of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station, and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations. And we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au. And we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.